on their way to that place called the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, we're pretty used to talking about the events that happened in the upper room where Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, and we know that story very well. And certainly we know the stories about his arrests and trials and crucifixion and so forth. But there's some pretty significant things that happened between the upper room and the Garden of Gethsemane. Namely, the longest prayer that Jesus prayed that's recorded for us. He prayed not only about himself and what he would soon be doing on the cross. He prayed for his disciples and the work that they would do. And then he prayed for us, those who would come afterwards. And so the title of the sermon this morning is simply this, The One Jesus Prayed For. If you have your Bibles, we're going to start in John chapter 17 and verse 20, and we'll read this text together. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also may, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Isn't it striking and interesting how often Jesus used the term being one? And so if you haven't figured it out, what we're going to talk about today is being united And even in that text, he says that they may be perfected in, the Greek says in one, our English translation smoothed out a little bit, and they say, be perfected in unity. That is our goal. That is our desire. That's the work that we have yet to do, to be united as the body of Christ, that we may accomplish the work that Jesus has left for us. There's another text I wanted to share with you real quick in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 3 to 6. I call this text the seven ones. And if you like to fill in the blank, I think there's one in your bulletin for you on this. Paul says this, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit, the unity of the Spirit, in the bond of peace. And then let's look at him. He says there is one body, one body, and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. What a text to look at, that we are supposed to be united and we are supposed to be one. And isn't it interesting in the John passage we read how Jesus says that he prays that we might be one. And here Paul talks about being diligent to preserve the unity, 
the unity of the Spirit, and the bond of peace. And then he lists all these things here. One body, one Spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. We wouldn't have to think very long to say, well, that might be the goal. But it surely hasn't worked out that way, has it? When you think about all the different bodies that claim to be the body of Christ that are out there, some believe this and some believe that. This group likes this group and this group won't have anything to do with that group. And we don't have to work very hard to think, well, the one body that God has called us to be, well, we've kind of been fractured, haven't we? And we've been broken in that unity that we want Sadly, is not there. And even when the, Paul talks about one Lord, talk about Jesus, of course, how many different views of Jesus do we have today? We have the view that, well, he was just a good man. Well, you really ought to li- listen to him. He had some good things to say. Some say, well, he was more than a good man. He was a prophet. You know, just like you, know, you got Elijah and Elisha and Isaiah. He was a prophet, spoke from God. Why, you really ought to listen to him. And then there are those of us who believe he is the only begotten Son of God. He is the perfect Lamb of God who gave his life as a ransom for many. But the world has many different views of who our Lord is. We probably don't even have the time to talk about one baptism because there are so many views of baptism that are out there. Well, it's just a sign, it's just a symbol, it's something you do afterwards, or it's for the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit when God provides a new life for us. The oneness that the Bible calls us to, the oneness that Jesus prayed about is still a work in progress. It's something that every Christian needs to be committed to, that we want to be united, don't we? We want to be one, do we not? And so it is a continual progress and a process that we all go through. I'm reminded even in our country, when it was being founded originally, remember the 13 colonies, there was a slogan that came about, and perhaps you've seen it on some of the coins that we have, E Pluribus Unum. Now, I'm not a Latin scholar, so I'm not going to go too far uh, into that one, uh, but we see it. Uh, you can see it on a dime, and if any of you are lucky enough to have that other coin that looks very gold to me, which I don't, uh, you've probably seen that phrase before. E pluribus unum. Uh, Some of you, if you've ever paid a lot of attention to the movie of The Wizard of Oz, you might recall that when the wizard was giving the scarecrow his diploma, a doctor of thinkology, I think I may go back to school and get that one, uh, he does actually throw in an e pluribus unitas or something like that. What does the phrase e pluribus unum mean? Well, it's a fairly simple, actually, and you can see it here. It means from the many, one. From the many, one. And you start to think about how all those individuals spread out through the original 13 colonies were now going to come together and become one nation. Now, there's a goal, isn't it? The uh, phrase pluribus unum was uh, adopted by Congress as our national motto in about 1782. And uh, I thought this was kind of interesting. It was replaced by another motto. I kind of like this one a little better. 
in God We Trust back in about 1956. But it's a good, good slogan, isn't it? It's something to work, uh, really work towards the 13 colonies forming a single nation that is the United States. What would our world look like if all of God's people could be united? Where there wasn't this group or that group and this group and them and those and these and so forth. But we would truly be one, even as God has called us to be. The need for being one, the need for being united, I think is a compelling need. I think it is also heartbreaking as we see it in our world today. i got a few examples for us. Just think about politics. I'm not going to talk about politics, but it used to be you could have a discussion about politics and not come to blows. It used to be you could have a discussion of who you liked and what you were for and not worry that they're never going to talk to me again. You could wear a certain color of a baseball cap and not be beaten for it. That doesn't happen very often in our world anymore. Sadly, in the United States, we think about the world crises that are there. We're always, it seems, one headline away from what is Iran going to do, what's North Korea going to do, what's the Chinese going to do. And you look around in our world, and, and sadly, again, not much unity, not much togetherness might, like we might like to see. And even more sadly so in the history of our nation, we've had to deal with racism and the sad, violent, murderous results that that has brought. And the charge of racism certainly brings a lot of lack of unity, lack of harmony. The crises that we see in the family, where the family unit that once was the bond that just kind of held everything else together now just seems to be another broken relationship in so many instances. And we wish that we could have that kind of unity and harmony in our families. Denominationalism. This group up the street, that group up the street, we like them, we don't like them, we disagree, we agree. And we see what the lack of harmony in the body of Christ. Those who claim to follow the same Lord we do, who read the same book that we do, and we're just saying there really isn't much unity out there anymore. Back in about 1992, you might remember the Rodney King incident. There was a man who was arrested brutally and violently beaten by some police officers from the Los Angeles Department. Those officers were eventually acquitted, which caused the L.A. riots to take place. And somewhere about that time frame, Rodney King uttered the words, Why can't we all just get along? can't we all just get along? The need for being one, the need for unity to me is just a compelling need. And sometimes in the church we have so many things we worry about and so many things that we think are important that maybe we need to come back to really the basics. And I have here, I call it the point that shouldn't have to be made. Now that's pretty bad when the preacher says this point shouldn't have to be made. In other words, we should already know this. We should already have it under our belt pretty well so we can move on to other things. But uh, I'm, I'm going to dare to do it anyway. I'm going to try to make the point that shouldn't have to be made. And here it is. Unity is a good thing. Can you all say amen to that one? 
But then you think, well, Blair, that really isn't all that profound. Maybe you could do something a little bit better than that, so I'm going to do this one. How about this? Unity is a really good thing. It is, isn't it? You say, well, I know that. I want that. But we just don't have that much of it out there. Well, how about this? Let's try this one. Maybe we'll bump up the energy a little bit. Unity is important. You agree with that one? But again, it doesn't really, you know, it sounds like stuff we've heard a hundred times before. How about this one? Unity is important. Man, when you use bold print, that says it all, doesn't it? If you yell a little louder, we must get the point then. Unity is a good thing. It's a really good thing. It's important. Last point on this, it doesn't have to be made. Unity is essential. If we want to be the church that Jesus wants us to be, if we want to be a part of the answer to the Lord's prayer that we may all be one, unity is absolutely essential for all of us and something we all need to be working towards. So then, how do you make the point that shouldn't have to be made? Because this is the kind of thing where, yeah, we get it, we know it, it's just sad that it isn't out there, let's move on and talk about something that we can do. I want us to really zero in where Jesus is. Jesus is on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's on his way where very shortly after that he's going to be arrested. He's going to have his, uh, one of his disciples betray him with a kiss. He's going to have another disciple deny him three times. I don't even know this guy. He's going to go through all these trials. And the thing that Jesus prayed for, I think, is essential for us to know. So here it is. How do you make the point that doesn't need to be made? Let's try this. Unity is good. It's really good. It's important. And it's essential. Yet none of these terms, in my estimation, seem to do justice to this prayer of Jesus. How necessary did Jesus find unity to be? Here it is. Jesus knew that a betrayal, denials, bogus trials, a scourging, a crown of thorns, three nails through his flesh, and a physical death were in his immediate future, and he did not pray about any of that. What he prayed for was that we might be one. What Jesus prayed for that was that his disciples and his church would be united. Jesus prayed that we would be one in the same way that he and the Father are one. Jesus knew that this would advance his cause of the church and it would bring glory to God. Now you think about what was important to Jesus in the moment. Man, if I know I have a doctor and I have a test and I have surgery and I have this and that and all the problems and the bills, I'd be praying about that. Jesus prayed for us that we might be one because of the work he's called us to do. I love that Old Testament passage in the book of Psalm chapter 133 and verse 1 where David wrote these words, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. David knew it in the Old Testament. Jesus prayed about it in the New Testament. And now that becomes our goal today to dwell together in unity. 
and to promote unity in the body of Christ and be a force for unity in the family and in the community and even the world around us. That needs to be our goal and how great it is. How wonderful it would be if we could see that kind of peace in our homes, peace in our community. Oh, it might be a lofty goal. I understand that, but we need to work for it. We need to pray about it. I want to share, I think, just three very simple lessons. All the other stuff was introduction. Here's the meat of what we're getting at today. Three things that we need to work for. Number one, unity is a goal to be pursued. We should be goal-oriented. Things that we want to do maybe in our homes, maybe in our finances, maybe in our personal life. Here's a goal for us as a church to pursue the unity that Jesus prayed for. He prayed that we may be one, and then he qualifies it, even as he and God are one. And you talk about a lofty goal. Wouldn't it be nice in the homes that we could be one family, one couple, one unit? Christ prayed that we might be one. In the book of Romans chapter 12, and I always have to, I hate it when I have to admit I made a mistake. That should be Romans 12, 18. Sorry about that. Missed the one in there somewhere. Paul says, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. What can we do today to promote unity? Might be something as simple as biting our tongue and not saying that thing that we might want to say because we know it's going to take away some peace, and it's not going to work towards unity. It might be listening to someone else and say, you know, that idea is pretty good. Maybe it's even better than my idea. Can you imagine that? As far as it depends on us, be at peace with all men. There are some people that are just constantly, it's like the match right to the powder keg. They're ready to blow up in a minute. Be at peace with all men. Listen. Listen, see what you can do to get along. It's a personal commitment, Paul says in this passage of Romans, as far as it depends on me. Well, I'll be at peace when they make up with me. I'll be at peace when they make the first move. Make the first move. Reach out to someone to try to settle that dispute down, whatever it may be. Unity requires diligence. That's what Paul will say to the Ephesians. Make every effort. Make every effort. And some days we just don't plain feel like being all that united. Some days we feel like being a little bit ornery. Some days we feel like getting our two cents in. Paul says be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And here we are simply following the prayer of Jesus that we may be one. And it reminds me that unity may actually cost us something. Unity doesn't come without a price because that means I'm willing to sacrifice a little bit. Don't always have to get my way. I don't always have to be heard. I can listen to others. I can yield. I can submit in certain ways if it promotes unity. Now, we're going to be united on the Word of God. That's going to be our standard. Uh, One of the great restoration movement phrases was, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. But that third phrase was, in all things, love. 
what we do is going to be motivated and guided by love. There's going to be some time where there'll be some give and take, and there's room for other ideas and room for other opinions. But in those matters where the scriptures speak, we speak. Where the scriptures are silent, we're silent. And this will allow us to be the church that God wants us to be. I think that when we are united as the body of Christ, it is a freeing thing. When we are united, we are free to do the work that Christ gave us to do. That we're not always in conflict. We're not always looking to get our way. We're not always looking to have it the the way I want it to be. But now being in unity, we can do what the Lord has called us to do. I can use my gifts. You can use your gifts as well. Be free uh, in unity. It is a goal to be pursued. Second thing I want to talk about here real quickly is to imitate the example of unity. Now, this one is a difficult one. When we say unity has always been important to God, that's true. Even in the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 1, you have God who created the heavens and the earth. The Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. And later in Genesis chapter 1, you know what the Scriptures say? Let us make man in our image. I like the us. I like the our, don't you? God and Jesus and the Spirit united as one in perfect harmony and perfect unity. And as you look through the scriptures, and this won't be the Trinitarian sermon this morning, but when you look at the scripture, there is no conflict between Jesus and God. There isn't, I want this, no, I want that, I'm going to do it. There's not. There's unity. There's following the plan that they had set out to do. Unity has always been important to God. And even in that idea of the Trinity, three in one, one God, one hope of your calling. They are so united in purpose that the Godhead is rightly said to be one. I like what John chapter 10 and verse 30 said. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Can you imagine that type of unity that you think the same, you do the same, you will the same, you're working for the same goal and the same outcome? And when you think about I and the Father are one, Matthew chapter 16 and verse uh, 18 down there after Peter confesses Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church. Now, I want to emphasize, he doesn't say, I'm going to build my churches as if I have many of them, this group, that group, another group. Jesus came to establish one church. We need to make sure we're a part of that one, right? There is one body, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, through all, and in all. If unity is not a desire of ours, then we need to rethink what our desires really need to be. Jesus uh, came to establish one church. It is spoken of consistently in the scriptures as being one. Well, you say that sounds good and it sounds biblical, but do you have anything more practical? How about our homes? The husband? The wife? Remember what that phrase says? The two shall become One flesh. Oh, wouldn't that be nice to be on the same page all the time, 
Right, Mary? <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? Be on the same page all the time. I, I have a couple jokes here. Like she always lets me have the last word like, yes, dear. But no, I'm not going to go down that road here. Uh, it, it would be nice if we can always be one. That we're on the same page together. We work towards the same end. These kind of things. What a goal it is to have in our homes to be united. To be one. What a goal it is to have in the church, the body of Christ, to be united and to be one. And you say, well, well why can't we have it that way? What's the problem here? I think the, I think the problem is very simple. The, the, what destroys unity is simply sin. Sin destroys unity. Think about what happened even before the world was created, when the devil, Lucifer, wanted, uh, by pride, he wanted all that power, and, and he lusted for it, and there is war in heaven. Hmm. Think about all the times that unity is destroyed when our own sinful attitudes, our sinful desires, pride destroys unity. Think about all the homes that are destroyed by lust, which is sin, that destroys it, what I want, what I desire, the appetites I have. And it destroys a family and it destroys a home. Think about all the crime and the unrest in the world and it's just caused all of the difficulties we see in groups not being able to get along with one another and so forth. Sin destroys unity. Jesus came to bring forgiveness. And it talks about how we can be united with him. Follow, imitate the example of unity. Finally this morning... Experience the outcome of unity. This is where we get to dream a little bit. This is where we get to imagine just a little bit. What could our homes be like? What could our church be like? What could the world be like if we really worked on the idea of unity? In the prayer of Jesus, John chapter 17 and verse number 21 Part of his prayer regarding unity is that we could be one so that the world can believe. Our evangelism is greatly enhanced when we're united. Uh, I heard a story a number of years ago about a new preacher that just got hired at a church and he uh, had to move from one state to another. And you know, like a lot of new preachers, they're all excited about starting this ministry. And he was getting his home, his parsonage set up And he goes down to the local hardware store to get a couple things. This is a true story, by the way. And he mentioned to the guy managing the hardware store, and he says, yeah, uh, I'm the new preacher at such and such a church. Guy looked at me and said, oh, you're the new minister at the Fighting First. What do you mean by that? Oh, at their last board meeting, there actually were fistfights, and the the police had to be called. They didn't tell tell that guy in the interview process, apparently. Can you imagine anyone really wanting to attend that church? Anyone really wanting to go to that congregation? Where is that, there is that type of animosity? Have I heard of other churches that where some business got done in the parking lot afterwards? Yeah. I heard some examples of some preachers who got cussed out by leaders because he didn't like what they're doing. Yeah, I've heard some of those. Our effectiveness is limited. It's ruined when we are not united as the body of Christ. But the one thing about unity is it's attractive. We hold out couples who are united, couples who get along, couples who are godly people. We say, man, I wish I could be like that. 
I sure wish my home looked more like that. And maybe we take steps to make our home look more like that. Or we say, well, this church, man, they got it together. They're doing great things. They love each other. They're supportive. They have fellowship. That's the kind of place I'd like to go. We say things like that. And it's a reminder to us that unity helps evangelism to become more effective. There's an old cliche. I know you've heard this one thousands of times. It might be a cliche, but it's still true. United we stand and divided we fall. Just think about what we can accomplish as a united church, as a united home, as a united group of states. There's an interesting concept, isn't it? You see, we harm and we limit our effectiveness when we are divided, but we enhance it. We are more attractive. We are more inviting when we are united in the cause of Christ. In John chapter 17 and verse 24, Jesus uses a word that he doesn't use very often in his prayer. Now, Jesus often talks about, Father, work through me, glorify me, that I might glorify you. So it's not like he never prayed about himself. He did that quite a bit. He certainly prays for his disciples and the work that they're going to do. But in John chapter 17, verse 24, there's a small little verb that he uses. And he simply says, Father, I desire. Think about your prayer list, your prayer requests for a little while. Many times our prayer request is, Lord, I need a new job. Lord, I need some health. Lord, my wife isn't feeling very good. Would you heal her? And we pray about these things that are our heart's most intimate desires. Jesus doesn't use this verb very often, but here he does. And so if you look at it as Jesus' personal prayer request, again, we could talk about the cross and the thorns and all those things coming up, but here he says, from the bottom of my heart, God, I desire. God, please, answer this prayer. And so he says he desires this for us. I really believe that Jesus desires a united church, a church that is effective in their mission. Why? The souls can be won so that many would see the glory of Christ. You might remember a few weeks ago, uh, my first sermon here that I got to preach was all about the glory of God. And here Jesus ends his prayer where he begins. He prayed, Father, glorify thy name and return to glory and so forth. But now he says, when we are united, others are going to see your glory. It's good for us to be united. But maybe it's even better that through a united family, united church, others might see the glory of God. And so I would encourage you in closing this morning... Make this your prayer. As Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse number 3, make every effort to preserve the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort. Make every effort. Pray with me this morning. Father in heaven, we're thankful for this prayer of Jesus. It teaches us so many things. It lets us see a glimpse into the heart of our Lord and Savior, of what was important to Him. May unity continue to be important to us. May we renew our efforts to be united, 
to be whole, to be one. Bless us in this end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.